0: The reading today is Philippians 2, 1 through 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord.
1: All right. Good morning. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here at SoMA. Glad to have you here with us. We're on. So if you're new, um, which you know, a lot of us are moving into the city this time of year and uh, maybe new to SoMA, or new again to SoMA, um, we are in a series this summer on friendship. And uh, you know, if you grew up <clears throat> in the church in the Midwest, you grow up uh, reciting this creed called the Apostles' Creed, And one of the parts of the creed says, "I believe in the communion of the saints." And that's not just something that we say, it's something that we believe, um, at least intellectually. But our our experience oftentimes is not um, that we really believe in that kind of... The idea of communion is is one of deep relationship, of a spiritual friendship that's rooted in a friendship with God that we then extend to one another. And, uh, And so we've been exploring in this series what it would look like for us to actually participate in that, not just believe it intellectually, but actually reflect it in our real relationships that God's placed around us. So we've been talking about this at a high level, about loneliness and how we think about our loneliness and how God wants to redeem us in our loneliness. And so kind of more high level, how do we choose and make friends and keep friends? Um, Specifically, though, this week and next week, we want to narrow in a little bit and talk about kind of the two domains of friendship, uh, at least for a follower of Jesus. One being uh, friendship in the church, which we'll talk about today. Next week, we're going to talk about friendship in the world, right? One of the characteristics of Jesus uh, it was actually kind of an accusation that was lobbed against him by like the super religious people was that he was a friend of sinners, and Jesus welcomed that title, uh, and <clears throat> I think was honored by that. And so we're going to look at what does it look like for us to befriend sinners, uh, understanding you know, that that's our story as well. But today I want to talk about friendship in the church, and that might seem to some of us like an oxymoron. Uh, friendship in the church is not something that many of us experience, but <clears throat> one of the things that Anybody who is a Christian writer historically on friendship is noted from Augustine all the way up most recently to a guy named Paul Waddell, which has been, uh, who's been a guy kind of a luminary thinker in the area of Christian friendship, for me at least, uh, <clears throat> points out the fact that, that there ought to be friendship in the church and that the fruit of friendship in the church ought to be a, a deep unity, right? like a deep oneness between the people who show up so that we don't just show up as kind of a, a collection of strangers, which is often how church feels. We sit next to these people we don't know them. We're not really involved in their lives. We we exchange pleasantries, and I know some of you run to the bathroom during the passing of the peace, but some of you stay in, and you at least feign some kind of kindness or social politeness. But there's no real authentic unity, and so the way that, that, that the apostle Paul lays out for us a vision here of friendship that leads to unity, and, and this idea of unity is the disruption of uh, kind of the natural sociological patterns. That would divide human beings, kind of all the isms that we talk about culturally. Um, Friendship ought to disrupt those isms and and, and it ought to forge an authentic unity that results in in joy and and a compelling witness. So, as we move out into the world, we have something real and authentic to offer people, not something that's empty and hollow and superficial. And so, Paul here um, in Philippians 2 gives us this vision. And it's really interesting. So Philippians 2, 1 through 4. Four verses in English, but it's actually one long run-on verse in the Greek. It's 82 words uninterrupted by any sort of uh, colons or semicolons or punctuation. And there's only one verb, okay? So my mom's here. She's she's an English teacher. Uh, We can kind of nerd out on grammar and syntax. But it's really important in the Bible when you see a verb, it, it gives us a sense of a command. There's actually one command here in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. It's verse 2. Paul says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. This idea of completing my joy, that's the verb here, complete my joy. Fill it up, literally, he says, to overflowing by sharing one heart, one mind, one soul. In other words, by being an integrated, unified whole right? Being knit together with your whole person, right? That's, that's the idea of a spiritual friendship that leads to a spiritual unity. Um, I love the way Eugene Peterson paraphrases it in the message. I think we have this slide up. Um, if you've gotten anything at all out of following Christ, if his love has made any difference in your life, if being in a community of the Spirit means anything to you, if you have a heart, if you care, then do me a favor. <clears throat> Agree with each other, Love each other. Be deep-spirited friends. Don't push your way to the front. Don't sweet-talk your way to the top. Put yourself aside and help others get ahead. Don't be obsessed with getting your own advantage. Forget yourselves long enough to lend a helping hand. This is the vision. Why don't we experience that? Why does our lived experience often fall woefully short of that kind of deep, unity and oneness that Paul seems to write so eloquently about. I think one of the reasons why we don't experience real unity in the church um, is because we get comfortable settling for illusions of unity. Uh, We call things unity that are not unity, and we just kind of, it becomes the new norm, right? It gets normalized, and so we're more comfortable settling for the illusion of unity on our own terms. We like unity on our terms, but not unity necessarily on Jesus's terms. Um, It's been said once that psychotics build castles in the air, neurotics live in them, and therapists collect rent from uh, both parties. And oftentimes when it comes to unity, we're content with our castles in the air. We build these things and we construct these things that are not real. It's not real unity, but we just get used to it. It's a it's a distorted unity. It's what Ronald Rolheiser, who's written a great book um, called uh, <clears throat> Holy Longing, he has a chapter on this, he calls it the spirituality of ecclesiology, essentially the spirituality of the church. And he says we settle for these distorted pictures of unity that resemble what Paul's writing about here, but don't exactly, I'm going to get some water, don't exactly match up with what the Bible says about unity. So he gives a couple, and I'm going to add on my own couple distortions of unity. See if you recognize any of these in your own life. The first is affinity. Affinity. We often call unity affinity. I would define affinity as the utopia, this idea that church ought to be a utopia of easy access to like-minded individuals who share our lifestyle preferences. It's what sociologist Robert Bellah wrote a long time ago. Thank you. Um, he called these lifestyle enclaves. And if we're honest, the church can often be a place uh, a, a somewhat of a lifestyle enclave. Uh, listen to David Augsburger, who kind of deconstructs this idea in his book, Dissident Discipleship. In true community, we do not choose our companions. We receive them as a gift. We cannot sort, select, and assemble, quote-unquote, our kind of people. They come to us by grace. Likeness eliminates challenge. Uniformity reduces growth. And sameness frustrates Creativity. There's no Quaker proverb that used to say it like this. True community exists when the person you dislike most dies or move away, moves away, and someone worse takes their place. Affinity is not unity, it's not true unity, right? We can share things in common. We can look alike, talk alike, think alike, have the same socioeconomic status, and yet not really experience true unity. That is a superficial unity that's not all bad, it can become the basis for deeper unity. But if that's all we have, then what happens when the affinity changes, right? Uh, second uh, distortion of unity is proximity, right? This idea that if we just live close to one another, and we value this as a community here. Many of you live in Ripple on the north side of Indianapolis, and li- literally there are blocks where we have what we call like, you know, gospel density, where people are living close intentionally towards one another so they can love God and love their neighbors themselves, but even that can be too superficial, right? Like this idea that um, unity is just because we live close by and because we, we, we talk a lot about like doing life together. You know, we're doing life together, which usually means like we're walking to graders together or we're walking to, some, you know, tiny treats together or we're on the Monon running together. But proximity, you know, like you can be surrounded by lots of people and not be in unity with them. It's What many people experience in the city every single day. Uh, common beliefs and mission, right? We think that if we just have the same doctrine, if we share a doctrinal statement, if we share a mission, if we care about the quartet of the downtrodden, then that, that, that is in and of itself unity. But the reality is we can be out active in the community, serving the community. We can share the same doctrinal statement. Some of you grew up in churches like this where you said the creed every week and yet there's all of this fighting, there's all of this fragmentation, there's dissolution all around. It doesn't mean that we are unified. The last distortion of unity um, is purity. Purity. This is kind of the idea that if we're unified, we're gonna be this like holiness club, right? We're gonna be this exclusive group of people who have it all figured out. There's that could be moral purity, it could be doctrinal purity or ideological purity, right? Like we're the ones who figured it out. We got we're the we're the ones that do it the right way, right? Um, this is why some of you have left the church because you expected the church to be a community of saints and you found out that it's actually a community of sinners. Rollheiser says this, to be connected with the church is to be associated with scoundrels, warmongers, fakes, child molesters, murderers, adulterers, and hypocrites of every description. It also at the same time identifies you with saints and the finest persons of heroic soul within every time, country, race, and gender. To be a member of the church is to carry the mantle of both the worst sin and the finest heroism of the soul. Because the church always looks exactly as it looked at the original crucifixion. God hung among thieves. I'm thankful that the church is not a perfect place. I would be super uncomfortable. I would not fit in, right? I don't know about you, but I'm not looking for the perfect church because I would not be able to be a member, right? I would get, like the, you know, I would get carted at the door and kindly escorted out, you know? And so this, this, these distortions of unity, though, keep us from pursuing authentic unity because we settle for something that's more an illusion or a fantasy than actual unity—the kind of unity Paul wants us to work towards together. Paul Adell, again in his book *Becoming Friends*, says this: Unity is not always a mark of the church. We have all heard of, or sadly been part of, faith communities that were torn apart by theological differences that had hardened into ideologies. Our churches are fractured by groups that are each convinced its own way is not only the right way, but the only way, and by people whose bitterness, hostility, and maliciousness drive many away and defeat the spirits of those who remain. Such congregations may be quite articulate at describing the love of Christ and the importance of salvation, but the emptiness any visitor feels in these places convinces them to search for life elsewhere. More often than not, these congregations, baffled by declining membership, look not to themselves for an explanation of their demise, but blame the unbelief of an increasingly secular world. Have you ever shown up in a community like that, where it just feels empty and hollow, and it's supposed to be Christian, it's supposed to be a community of the friends of God, and yet it's marked by superficiality and a hollowness and an emptiness and a coldness? So the invitation here in Philippians 2 is for a friendship that leads us to authentic unity, not a distorted unity, not an illusionary uh, unity, but a true, authentic, substantive, like where there's re- the real pursuit of real unity in the midst of kind of the grittiness and the rawness and the, 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 the messiness of life, right? And so again, Rollheiser says this, we go to church looking for friendship or ideological soulmates and often do not find them. This does not mean that there is something wrong with the church, merely that we have false expectations. To be in church is to stand shoulder to shoulder, hand in hand, precisely with people who are very different from ourselves and with them hear a common word, say a common creed, share a common bread, and offer a mutual forgiveness so as in that way to bridge our differences and become a common heart. That is the idea of unity. Friendship is socially disruptive. It disrupts our natural human inclinations and priorities and agendas and bridges differences. It doesn't eradicate differences. It doesn't seek to say, you become like me or I become like you. To have one heart, one mind, doesn't mean that we have the same opinion on everything or that we're going to be in lockstep on political nuances, or that we're going to even share, you know, it's, it's so much deeper than that. It's about the overcoming or bridging of differences that create true oneness of heart, mind, soul. That's what Philippians, by the way, is all about. Philippians, one scholar calls it a letter of friendship. If you're familiar, which I'm sure you spend a lot of time reading ancient literature Uh, If you read like Cicero and any of the ancient uh, writers, this book, uh, this letter has all the markings of friendship, and yet it's deeper because Paul roots his vision of friendship not just in horizontal pleasantries and affections, but in vertical realities between us and God. He's creating a triangle essentially, right, between himself and this church that he planted and the relationships he has and the good news of Jesus. And he's saying, what deepens community is our relationship with Jesus, and our relationship with Jesus ought to lead us out into meaningful friendships and unity. So he talks about, in chapter one, these deep affections. I mean, this is, if you're a dude reading this, if you're a guy reading this, um, this is strange language, because he talks about his emotions. Um, he talks about his heart. He talks about his affections and the warmth in chapter one, the partnership that he has in the gospel, not just to get stuff done, but the deep affection. He says, I yearn for you. I mean, this is, this is romantic language. I yearn for you with the affection of Jesus Christ. I'm not just here with you on mission. I'm not just here with you out of affinity. I long for a relationship that is deeper with you. And, and, and if you know anything about this story, again, this is not a story of affinity. These are not just Jews or whatever that came together uh, around a common uh, identity sociologically. You can read about the origin story of the the church in Philippi in Acts chapter 16. Their first three converts that we know of, uh, one was named Lydia. She was a wealthy entrepreneur, fashionista who was Asian. The second was a slave girl who was essentially being trafficked and used to to profit powerful men in the city. Um, She was demon-possessed. And then the third was the kind of like an ex-Marine, blue-collar, Philippian jailer kind of guy, right? And these, this becomes the foundation of the church, and God takes those differences, and he creates unity between them. And the, kind of the capstone verse in Philippians is chapter 1, verse 27. Paul writes, writing from prison to this church that he planted, says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ." so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, one soul, one heart, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So he says what's at stake in our friendships is not just friendship, it's the plausibility and credibility of the gospel itself. Our ability to to walk in deep friendship with each other over the course of our lives, literally is the thing that gives visibility to the invisible reality of the church. It's what puts skin and bones on the church for a watching world. So he says, I want you to be united, and then I want you to stand side by side and move out into the world and show the world what it looks like to walk in unity. So let's talk about that just for a second, because Paul's going to take us deep into kind of the, The the psychology and the spirituality of why we don't experience that, and then he's going to lift our vision and show us how we can begin to pursue deep spiritual friendship that leads to deep, authentic unity with with each other. So he starts by identifying uh, kind of the the problem with unity, like the real deep issue with why we don't experience unity, and then he gives a prescription or a solution. So um, what is the problem with uh, unity? Why don't we experience unity in the church? Um, if you think about just kind of like our human community, so outside the church, there's a lot of talk about um, what's wrong with human beings. While we have so much strife, we've, we've compared this to cultural PTSD, this moment that we're living in. There's so much trauma that seems so complex, and people are trying to diagnose what's wrong. People are writing blogs and articles, uh, you know, writing books about what's wrong with the world. And there's this kind of human impulse right now to blame uh, relational division on merely external and systemic and structural patterns. So there's a lot of talk about things like intersectionality, right, which if you're not familiar with it, is kind of an academic term. Uh, there's a lady that came up with this term back in the 80s. We'll talk more about this in our Power series coming up in a few weeks. But intersectionality is the idea that um, there's these intersecting uh, kind of lanes, so to speak, of sexism, racism, and classism that block human beings from making progress and that keep certain groups of people press down and if we can just kind of lift the ceiling on those and evolve beyond those then we can kind of lift the human community and, and certainly those are legitimate realities for a lot of people and we'll talk again more about that but Paul takes us deeper beneath the surface and says there's more going on there's a more fundamental ism at work undermining unity in our kind of biblical anthropology and it's not just those external things it's actually something inside it's, it's what I'll just call egocentrism. Egocentrism. So uh, let's put it this way. The greatest threat, Paul says, to we is me. The greatest threat to we is me. G.K. Chesterton, the great uh, apologist and defender of Christianity, uh, not long ago, uh, there's a story that's told. There were some newspaper uh, journalists that sent out a request to several authors, and they said, this world seems to have lost its mind. What is wrong with the world? And G.K. Chesterton, in his characteristic, you know, kind of like directness and sincerity and vulnerability, writes back, and he simply says, I am. I am what's wrong with the world. And Paul would agree. Look at verse four. Look at verse three. Paul says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, so what's wrong in this community is, he says two things, rivalry and conceit. This idea of rivalry is what others might translate selfish ambition or just kind of this divisiveness. Um, the really interesting word here, though, is this word conceit. Conceit, um, it comes, it's a compound word, kenodoxia. Keno meaning empty, doxia meaning praise or glory, right? And so uh, you could translate it in the old King James. I, when I became a Christian, we only had King James version. It was vainglory, right? Um, You could could translate it vainglory or empty glory, or really just call it pride. What Paul's saying is what what can kill unity in the church, what kills friendship at the core is empty glory. In other words, there's a hunger in the human heart for glory. The word glory or doxa, from which we get doxology in the Bible, just simply means weightiness. So what Paul's saying is there's a hunger in the human heart to, to feel like we matter, to feel like we're weighty, to feel significant, to, to enjoy the getting affirmed and getting compliments. Like there's never been a time in your life when somebody like really affirmed you and said you did a great job that you were like, that felt bad. You know, like that, that's just never, that's never happened. When somebody a- affirms you, when they acknowledge you, when they encourage you, you're just, I mean, if you really like, if you really look inside yourself, you're like a black hole. I mean, you can take that all day long, and it never feels like enough, that's because we have a hunger deficit. We have a glory deficit inside of us. It makes us desperately insecure. When we feel like our needs are not getting met, when we feel like we're being snubbed, like, do you realize that's why you get so angry when people exclude you? Because you have this deep need to belong. You have this deep need to be affirmed, to feel like your life matters, to feel like you're significant right? And by the way, that was put in you by God. But when it gets turned, when it gets twisted uh, onto self, it can make us desperately insecure. And so what happens is we move out into life with essentially one agenda in every arena we find, whether you're at a work party or, or you just got married or you're living with a bunch of roommates or you're in college, like we all basically have one agenda in life and it's simply this. Let me just kind of boil down like all of your problems to one thing, Paul says, selfish ambition and conceit we want to manipulate circumstances and relationships in order to achieve the agenda of getting glory from other people. And so I am, because I have a deficit in my heart, because I feel empty, because I feel insecure, because I long for glory, I will move out and I will use you, I will consume you to get glory for myself because the heart of, of conceit is really just self-preoccupation. I'm just thinking about what I need. Like, that's how we think all the time. Like, think about when you go to a dinner party. You go to a work party. You show up, and what do you immediately do? You don't walk into the room, most of us, unless you're a sociopath, you don't walk into the room super confident. You walk into the room trying to project confidence, but you're scanning the room, and you're trying to figure out Who's, a little, who's better than you and who's not as good as you? And then you're going to try to fit into the social hierarchy, but really you're trying to work your agenda basically like, how can I not embarrass myself and let everybody know that I'm really a fraud? That's kind of the way that we work. It's, it's called the imposter syndrome, right? We all feel like frauds. And when we move out into the world, uh, we try to cover that with competency, with mastery, with achievement, with, you know, like beauty. Uh, there's all kinds of ways we do that. The, the, the easiest metaphor that like came into my mind, so I'm going to give you a little window into where I grew up in the South. Some of you know that I grew up in Kentucky. Uh, the best metaphor that I could stick in your mind for what this looks like in the church is this. Um, in she- Shepherdsville, Kentucky, outside of where I grew up in Louisville, and some of you know this because you've been here, is, and I love the title, the most awesome flea market in the world. Now, if you've never had the privilege to go to a flea market, it is quite a spectacle. It is pure entertainment, okay? So basically, you have a bunch of random folks, a bunch of random individuals, who somewhere along the way, somebody told them that this little trinket that they invented should be mass-produced and sold uh, at a flea market. So they purchase or rent space, and everybody, I mean, you can see, look, like, RVs, vans, and it's not just, like, it's not like a class thing. Like, there are people of different classes, different races all there trying to sell their trinkets and thinking that they're amazing. And so you walk down and it is a cacophony of people with, you know, competing interests and ambitions and backgrounds. And that's kind of what I think Paul's talking about here with the church. A bunch of people that are really focused on and preoccupied with themselves, it's like a flea market. We all show up to community and we're all focused on trying to sell ourselves to each other, bringing our trinkets, bringing our ambitions, bringing our agendas to community and trying to get other people to conform to our agendas. That's vain glory, that's empty glory and Paul says it will kill unity. And here's the thing, when you start to live in real community with people, this is why some of us are terrified to like really get into like a missional community or get in discipleship or become a member or get baptized or become a Christian or really just be in a vulnerable community, which is, I mean, that's a, that's a big thing for us at Stone. We talk a lot about authenticity and not like the poser way that we kind of talk about it culturally, but like real authenticity is not just like, let me show you enough of myself that you think I'm a little broken, but I'm really going to hide my true self. Like true authenticity is I want you to see what's real and what's true, both good and bad, right? I want you to see who I am at the core. When you begin to live in real community with people and, and befriend people, that vainglory gets exposed. It's terrifying because you can put the filter on, you know what I'm talking about, like the, the little schemes and strategies we've developed to make ourselves socially acceptable to other people. But when you really get in relationship with somebody, those filters begin to drop. And it's funny. You'll say things like, oh, that's not the real me. Like, you'll blow up on somebody and be like, oh, that's not really me. No, that's you. Okay? Like, that's the real you. Uh, We're just now all beginning to see it for the first time. So if, like, you're newly married, it's going to happen. It might take five minutes. It might take five months. It will eventually come down. You get new roommates. You go to a new church. Everything's awesome at the beginning. But then the guards begin to come down. The castle walls begin to come down. The drawbridge comes over the moat, and we begin to see the ugly, the crazy, the dark, uh, it gets exposed. Again, Rollheiser says it like this, in the presence of people who share life with us regularly, like if you have real community, this this ought to be your experience. We cannot lie, especially to ourselves, and delude ourselves into thinking we are generous and noble, which is how we show up in every community, right? Like, I'm a generous person, these people are lucky to have me, you know, it's like, we would never say that, but that's kind of the way we act. But in community, the truth emerges. Fantasies are dispelled. Not being involved with church because of the church's faults is often a great rationalization. What is too painful to deal with is not the church's imperfection, but my own fantasies about my own goodness, which in the grind of real community will become painfully obvious. If that's not your experience, you don't have real community. You don't have real friendship, right? You don't have a real relationship. Because a real relationship involves seeing the good and the ugly, the light and the shadow, and learning to hold those things in tension and love each other through those things. So how do we escape this tyranny? The greatest threat to we is me. The greatest threat to we is you. First and foremost, primarily, fundamentally, Paul says, how do we escape the tyranny of self-preoccupation? This is Paul's invitation Authentic unity requires supernatural humility. Authentic unity requires supernatural humility. What is humility? Again, this is not a word that's prized, but it's a word that's very important to the kind of uh, moral vision of the church in the New Testament. Look at what Paul says. Let each of you, excuse me, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, verse three. But in humility count others more significant than On a cross, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Humility, the word simply means lowliness, right? Lowliness, lowliness of mind, lowliness of heart. Jesus used this to to describe himself. He said, come to me, I am meek and lowly of heart. It's gentleness. This is a word that was mocked and scorned. It was not listed in any of the tables of virtue. If you read Aristotle, if you read any uh, authors in the Greco-Roman world around this time, it would be scandalous to say, be humble, pursue humility. Humility was the posture of a lower class slave. It was something to be uh, avoided at all costs. It was a scandal then, but I would argue it's still a scandal today. True humility is scandalous. Rob Wilkins, commenting on this passage, says, In the vocabulary of the world, down, which is really the word humility, down, Jesus literally came down, is a word reserved for losers, cowards, and the bear market. It is a word to be avoided or ignored and certainly not discussed seriously, especially in polite society. It is a word that colors whatever it touches, even the otherwise proper company of words that it keeps, down and out, downfall, downscaled, downhill, downhearted, and worst of all, especially if you're an Aussie, down under. A word, it seems, only on the unfortunate lips of the weak, the poor, or the dead. If all that weren't enough, there is this crowning blow against the word. Its antonym is up. And up in our high-voltage society is a word that has come to be cherished, almost worshiped. It is a word reserved for the winners, heroes, and those who know their bill. It is a word to be admired and pursued. The unspoken talk Now it's spoken, talk of the party. The way to influence whoever is present. Upscale, up and coming, upperly mobile, upper class. Summarizing, he says, up clearly is the direction of greatness. And Paul says, not in the church. Our spirituality is one of downward mobility. Scholars have called this passage the great condescension. Jesus comes down. He humbles himself, taking on the form of a servant, emptying himself of glory so that we might be filled with his glory. The way up, Paul says, is the way down. This is the heart of humility. Wilkins goes on to say that humility is the call to descend into greatness. Descend into greatness. I love that term. John Dixon in his work on humility likewise says this, humility is the noble choice to forego your status, deploy your resources, or use your influence for the good of others before yourself. The humble person is marked by a willingness to hold power in the service of others. So he says, Jesus never gave up power. He gave up the status associated with power, but he actually never gave up his power. He simply held it in trust for other people. First, he says, humility presupposes your dignity. The one being humble acts from a height, so to speak, as the lowering etymology makes clear. True humility assumes the dignity or strength of the one possessing the virtue, which is why it should not be confused with having low self-esteem or being a doormat for others. In fact, I would go so far as to say that it is impossible to be humble in the real sense without a healthy sense of your own worth and abilities. Second, humility is willing. It is a choice. Otherwise, it is humiliation. Finally, humility is social. It's not a private act of self-deprecation, banishing proud thoughts, refusing to talk about your achievements, and so on. I would call this simple modesty. But humility is about redirecting your powers, whether physical, intellectual, financial, or structural, for the sake of others. What do we see in the life of Jesus? Because Jesus had this habitual humility. This wasn't just like, like my humility is occasional. Like when I feel like it, when it's not inconvenient, if I don't find you overly annoying or weird, uh, then I will try to exercise some sort of humility towards you. At least fake it, right? Like fake it till I make it. Jesus' was not occasional. It was instinctual. It was who he was. He took on the form of a servant, took on a human body, which in and of itself is humility, What do we see in the life of Jesus? Two things, two imitations for us. One is emptying. These are are patterns. Emptying and considering. Emptying and considering. Let's just explore these real quickly and then we'll close. Emptying. Jesus emptied himself, right? There's this word again, kenosis. He made himself nothing. He didn't consider equality with God something to be held onto or grasped or clung to. He simply let it go. In order, so he empties himself, he creates space so that we can be filled, right, with the glory of God. This is a beautiful little hymn, a song here that was sung and recited in the early church about Jesus. And what what Paul's saying here and what the church has sung about and recited for centuries is not that Jesus empties himself of his divinity. He does not forfeit his divine essence. He is still God in every way, shape, and form. What he empties himself of is his need to be recognized and honored as God in the flesh. As a human being, he is born as a helpless baby, right? He is born in a stable, humiliating to a teenage mom. He grows up and he is cursed by men, right? Eventually crucified dying a criminal's death, right? His entire life was one of, now get this, voluntary humility. Nobody took his life from him. He offered himself up. It says he, he humbled himself. He was not humiliated. He was humbled. He humbled himself. He redirected his power, his privilege, and his status to serve the needs of others. This is the heart of emptying, right? Right? This was Jesus' nature, emptying himself of any sort of egocentricity, any sort of need to be honored and recognized. All the glory that belonged to him from eternity past and will belong to him to eternity future, he lays that down and becomes a human being and dies in our place for our sins. That is humility. Does that pattern of emptying characterize your life and mine? right? Emptying is creating space, emptying ourselves of our egos, our ambitions, our desires, our needs, so that we can lift our horizon of concern and see those around us who need to be served. Which leads us to the second point, considering. Emptying ourselves, creating space so that others can be filled. So that now, uh, if you think of this like a dinner table, Paul says here, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Again, it doesn't mean you have an inferiority complex. It doesn't mean you're a doormat. It doesn't mean you have low self-esteem. Christians should not have a, an inferiority anthropology that tells us that we're worms and we're terrible people and we're despicable human beings. Okay, that is not at all what the Bible's saying. Okay, we are sinners, but we are also saints. These things are all true together. Paul's not saying, uh, you know, uh, empty yourself of yourself. What he's saying is empty yourself of egocentricity. Considering is this idea that um, I'm in awe of the people that God's placed around me. I have an awareness of how amazing it is that I get to gather with you guys every day. That your image bears of God himself, stamped with the likeness of God, possessing a soul worthy of dignity and value that is inherent to who you are because you have been created in the image of God not because of what you do, not because of how you look, not because of how much money's in your bank account, not because of how educated you are, but simply because you are a creature created, a human being created in the image of God. It's like this sense of like Paul's going, when you show up to church, when you show up with with God's people, you ought to be just like amazed. Like when was the last time you showed up at church and you're like, you mean I get to be a part of this? Like we're mostly going like, How do I, you know, like, how do I survive until lunch? Paul's just saying, what would it look like for you to show up and go, wow, look at all these significant people. Look at all these people created in the image of God that I've been placed around for the glory of God and for my own good and for their good. You mean I get to be a part of, I get to be baptized, I get to be a part of this, I get to be a member, I get to invest, I get to be discipled. Wow. That's not how we show up. But Paul says that's how we should show up. And we're free to do that once we've emptied ourselves. C.S. Lewis said, humility isn't thinking less of myself, it's thinking of myself less. As I'm not so preoccupied about me, now I'm free to be focused on you. To consider your needs, it doesn't mean I don't consider my own needs. I don't do this to the point of like, eradicating myself or losing myself, notice he says, let each of you look not only to his own interests. So you must look to your own interest if you're going to actually serve other people. But he says, don't make that your primary pursuit. Look to meet the needs of those around you. In other words, if church is like a dinner table, who's at, who's at your table, right? And more importantly, who's not at your table, right? Typically, we're captain of the ceremonies, we're at the table by ourselves. The borders of our heart concern only with ourselves. Maybe some of us have moved to like a stage two spirituality where we've enlarged the borders of our heart, the horizon of our concern to those who think like us, look like us, our kind of immediate circle of friends, those who it's easy for us to be around. Paul says, man, I want you to look up. Jesus emptied himself, considered the needs of the world before his own, took on the form of a servant, celebrated the advancement of other people? Look to advance their interests ahead of his own. Are we considering the needs of others before our own? Francis Schaeffer, a great intellectual and uh, thinker, if anybody in here probably under 40 has no idea who he is, anybody over 40, maybe you've, uh, he's had a profound influ- influence on the Western church. But he he sounded this warning against uh, towards the American church before he passed in kind of his later days, um, and he said this. He warned the American church that uh, his great fear for the church was that they would die. The, church, the American church would die or become irrelevant because of what he called the sin of personal peace and affluence. And he wrote a lot about this, and he talked about this. And this idea of personal peace is that most of us, he says, want to be left alone, not to be troubled by the troubles of other people, whether across the world or across the city. To live one's life with minimal possibilities of being personally disturbed, wanting to have my personal life pattern undisturbed in my lifetime, regardless of what the result will be in the lifetimes of my children and grandchildren. He says, if we don't extend and expand the borders of our concern, our tables, beyond our own needs, and those like us, the church will die and will become irrelevant. And I just wonder if those weren't prophetic words for us. We see churches closing. We see churches dying every day. And we are not immune to that, right? We can have a superficial unity where we all show up, right? And we all are in the same room. And maybe we're singing songs, maybe we're not. Maybe we're going to missional community, maybe we're not. Maybe we're in discipleship, maybe we're not. But do we have the deep oneness, the joy, the humility, the unity that Paul calls us to? This is the imitation for us, authentic unity rooted in spiritual friendship. So, I don't know about you, but this is like really heavy. And, And it just reminds me again, like I said this last week, how bad of a friend I am and how far we still have to go as a church. This is impossible in our own strength, and that's kind of Paul's point. Like, how do we do this? How do we actually step towards this? You can't become more humble by trying to become more humble, okay? So, like, that in and of itself is kind of like a defeater, right? Like, if I'm writing a book on humility, I'm probably not being humble, right? Um, Jesus says we've got to lift our vision, and we've, we've got to just not imitate Jesus, which is impossible, but w- the call here is for us to participate in the life of Jesus and in each other's lives. I'll close here with uh, verse one. Paul says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, and this conditional clause should be read more like because there is. He says, if there is, and I know that there is, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Holy Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, heart, soul. Paul's saying the key is participation. There's a Trinitarian structure here, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that we're being invited. He's saying if you have a spiritual pulse, if you've been united by faith to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, the overflow of your life then together should be one marked by humility and increasing unity, spiritual friendship, right? If our life together is marked by superficiality, hostility, and division, it is evidence that we're not experiencing the abundance of the good news of Jesus that he came to purchase for us. So it's an opportunity for us to reflect, and not to try harder, but to simply live out what's already been planted in us. That's why he says, have this mind in in yourself, which is already there. There. It's already there. The divine seed of humility, Jesus' power and presence, if you're united by faith, if you're in union with Christ, it's already there. So he says, nurture it and by God, with God's help and by the power of the Holy Spirit, help it come to maturity in your life. Live into what is already true. He reaches back into the past and says, this has happened, it is a historical event. He looks to the future and says, this is our destiny. Now live in this reality. That is the good news of friendship in Philippians. And that's what we celebrate every week here in community together. The body of Jesus broken for us, the blood of Jesus shed for us. And so we want to invite you, friends of God, those who, are, who have been united by faith to Jesus, encouragement from Christ, sympathy and love, participation in the very life of God fuels our life together. And if that's true of you, come and receive communion today stations in the front, stations in the back, come and take a piece of the bread, tear it off and dip it into the cup, and be reminded that God is, as Paul says, working in you to bring this work of humility and unity to completion. He will fulfill his promises. If you're not a follower of Jesus, if you're not a friend of God, we're glad that you're here. We're so thankful that you would consider uh, this service, and that you would listen to us, and that you would kind of put up with us, so to speak, but we pray that God would, would unite your heart to his, and this would be an invitation for you to maybe leave and to think about church and religion and spirituality in a completely different way, with a completely different paradigm maybe than what you grew up with. So I'm going to pray for us. We'll take communion, we'll sing together, and we'll send you back out. Father, we thank you that you invited us to be your friends, to be a community of the friends of God, participating in spiritual friendship with you and then extending that friendship to one another. God, would you humble us today? Would you awaken us to the many ways that we are self-preoccupied and the different schemes and ambitions and agendas that are even present in this room, God, Or we are seeking to put our own needs ahead of others? So God, would you just bring unity to this body? Would you supernaturally uh, continue to cultivate and nurture humility in our hearts esteeming our brothers and sisters better than ourselves, being in awe of the fact that you've placed us together as a community full of sinners and saints all at the same time working out our our friendship with you together. So God, thank you for this gift of grace. Help us now to to be humble and to come and receive the body and blood of Jesus as, as power and strength to live this life that you called us to live this week. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.